What does the word intentional mean to you? Just living my values. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving break. I am very excited for today's conversation. I have Ami Kassar on the show. He is the founder of Multifunding, where, as he puts it, they're like investment bankers for debt, specifically the SBA loans. They do about $125 million in funding for their clients, where they go find the right type of SBA and the right type of lender for the business owner's goals and their funding that should align with their goal. And the goal of the target equity valuation, so if you've tuned in the last two episodes, I highly recommend going back and listening to them if you have not. The goal has to dictate what type of funding you need because it's going to impact your ability to take distributions, taxes, and the, and the timeline to get there. So this is not a conversation only about SBA loans. It's about how to fund the growth of your plan and how the identification of your plan and your goal is the most important part. Otherwise, you could be sucking up debt and have no return or you could be trapped in your business. The only reason to take on debt should be to get you to your goal faster and the return is going to be visible because your target equity valuation, your timeline, and your distributions are identified. I think you're going to learn a lot in this conversation and I really hope you enjoy the conversation with Ami. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Ami, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. I, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation because I uh, I think about what you do for a like what your business does and how needed I how needed I how much I needed what you do like 10 15 years ago before we sold the family business for some context I interviewed 17 banks after the 09 crisis because it totally upended our business on me <laughs> like so I, I showed up to the uh to the family business I hadn't been uh full time and I show up in December of 09 and my dad had been distanced from the company we're doing 20 million in revenue and I pull him out kind of back in being young I'm like hey what the hell are we doing here and we sit down in the bank in the CPA meeting and we lost 940,000 bucks in 09 on 21 million in revenue and uh we were financing our receivables because my dad was selling copiers not knowing like you know, just he knew how to sell copiers. <laughs> that was that was his skill set, and uh, started financing his receivables. I mean, like, I want to say it was like four years after the business started. So for twelve years, we did that, and the bank didn't actually factor. And so, like, the bank had outsourced that deal. They were under an FDIC covenant when 09 hit because of all their crap loans, and they wouldn't refinance us because they had sold the loan, and they were but they needed all of our fees. And so I interviewed 17 banks trying to like get new funding. And I didn't know someone like you existed or if you were around back then. And honestly, just beat our heads against the wall. We sold the whole company because 
we didn't understand all the stuff that you do. And also uh, this is hence my passion of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So with that kind of like wrapper and container, why don't you give the audience a little bit of an overview of what you're doing these days? You got to, I don't know if the book is coming out or coming, uh, came out, but love to dive into your, your expertise and journey of uh, financing and how to get people where they want to go. Sure. So, I mean, the root of what we do is kind of like an investment bank for debt. So, we work with business owners and entrepreneurs to try and understand their stories, to try and frame and get a clearer concept of what's going on and what their needs are to achieve their goals. And then if it's possible, and it isn't all the time, we try to lay out different debt options that might work for them to do that if they want to retain control and avoid equity. So our job is to know the debt markets like at the back of our hand and to be able to kind of decipher what's going on in each entrepreneurial journey and each entrepreneurial story and put it together and help them come up with a plan that works for them and then execute that plan and get the money that they need to do what they need to do. Which I love. And I think one of the, for the listeners, I mean, it, the one of the crucial parts there is that you're like an investment banker for debt. So you're not an actual bank where your one product is the one thing that you can do. So maybe like what, what would be like the spectrum of different options or flavors that we can kind of jump into? Because each flavor of debt comes with different things, right? Yeah, so I want to be careful that there are like everyone has their strikes of, right? So we work really well with owner individually owner operated businesses if the private equity folks are in or institutional investors are in et cetera et cetera or venture capital are in we're mostly like out even if it's an individual and they're doing like owner they're doing real estate like they're building a real estate portfolio that's out so our world is really owner run entrepreneur run businesses that are either cash flowing or rapidly on their way to cash flowing. So there are plenty of debt products across the spectrum for other scenarios. It's just not the field mm-hmm. that we play. So what I say a lot, and I kind of mean it, is so my dad, he passed like four and a half years ago. He was an ophthalmologist, but he specialized in cataracts or corneas. If you had a retina issue, you went to a different doctor. So we have our lane and we were really exceptional at it. And within that lane, we land up using the SBA about 95% of the time, not exclusively, but about 95% of the time. Now in the SBA land, there's a full different spectrum of things you can do with an SBA loan. And we do all of those, um, but that's kind of sort of how we frame the world. Mm-hmm. If that makes no, very helpful because then we're not jumping into all these different avenues that don't apply. And uh, I think it is um, within that wrapper. I think even though SBA loans is ninety five percent of the time, like what I just alluded to, you know, twelve years ago. I mean, I, I interviewed seventeen banks, and every one of them had a different take or flavor on SBA loans that I didn't even understand. And I think that's hence why you have a like you guys have a specific niche that you're fitting because like an SBA loan is not just an SBA loan, is it? So SBA lending as a whole has a branding problem. <laughs> not, not unlike EOS implementers. Okay. So let's take EOS implementers, which I'm going to guess a lot of people who listen to your podcast have heard of before. You might have an amazing EOS implementer or a horrible one that you had a horrible experience with. Okay. 
and you assume whatever your experience is or what your friend's experience is reflects EOS. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't, right? Because the EOS experience is exper- experience is high or the scaling up experience, if you choose that methodology, is highly driven by who actually helps you through it. And the exact same is true for SBA loans. All SBA lenders are absolutely not made equal, period, end of story. The best SBA lender for your project is a highly good chance is not in your backyard, which is where most people go look. Okay. Or the first person they stumble across. Like, what is it? Have you ever heard I mean, the, the stat about realtors when someone, it's like 90 some percent of people go with the first realtor that they find? Right. So I've heard time and time again from people. Oh, my friend had a shitty SBA experience, so I'm never doing an SBA loan. Okay. <laughs> right. Or I've heard things to the effect of, I went to the bank, they told me I'm not qualified, so I'm out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what I talk about, about the branding problem. Amongst other things, back to the doctor experience, there really are only about 100 SBA lenders in the country who know what they're doing. Okay. Just by the volume that they do. Mm-hmm. So if you needed, I'm making it up, a cataract operation, do you want to go to the doctor who does one a year or does 50 a year? (laughs) Right. Right. 100%. Yep. And that's not to say that the SBA is the best thing for you for every situation. It's not. But understanding those dimensions, and, and I didn't understand that when I started this business, but the first SBA lender we were working with, and we worked pretty much with them exclusively for like the first year or so. I just thought they were, that was what SBA lending was. I, I, I want to take that. I'm super curious because, you know, the, the, the sources of truth, the, the truth that you're, uh, that you're laying out right now, I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reconciling my experience with what you're saying, but I always find that how you got to that truth is probably a difficult journey. So how did, did you jump in to start doing the SBA lending for this one lender first? Or did you like, how did you get passionate about lending and debt in general, and then land on the SBA, the the SBA is the main vehicle and, and helping people match up with what their needs are with the particular SBA. So that's, there's, there's, there's levels and layers to that story, which I'm happy to share, but in 2010, from like 2001 to 2010, I worked for the largest issuer of credit cards to small businesses in the United States. And we had about a million customers and a thousand employees and about a billion dollars worth of market cap. And I had a couple of roles. The last few years, I served as the chief innovation officer of the company. And we completely decimated in the Great Recession. Before it was my turn to be let go, I had had to help let 960 people go, which was hands down the toughest professional thing I ever went through. And then it wasn't a surprise. I got fired by the bankruptcy trustees on a Friday. And what I wanted to do was this raw idea, perhaps driven by seeing all the pillage I've been seeing as all these people lost their credit, um, to try build a service where entrepreneurs could, in a completely transparent manner, find out their loan options and alternatives and the best options and alternatives for them and make sure they understood what they were getting in in English. So that's what we set out to do. I think it took 11 months before we closed one loan and our revenue in the first year was 
uh, $13,000. It was a shit show. Okay. Like, is it, what were your thoughts going through your head as you're sitting there going, I know that this is what's needed. Why is this so damn hard? <laughs> well, it's stubbornness, uh, <laughs> obstinacy, determination, grit, what, what, whatever it is, just a general sense of, I don't, I'm not going to give up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just who I am. Okay. And I mean, I was crazy. Okay. I kept close to selling my first board. <laughs> I'm laughing because I've been there, my friend. <laughs> and then as we spent several years trying to figure it out, predominantly trolling the internet for leads and this and that, we're doing a lot of small little loans, 25, 50s, and this and that. And suddenly we were starting to do some SBA loans, working with one particular lender. And the SBA loans we were doing were nice because those were bigger transactions compared to the smaller ones we were doing. But they were taking a long, long time to do. And we managed to get to the point where with this one lender, we were like 10% of their volume. And so I went up to them in New York and I met with them. And I said, I don't know if I'm doing everything right. I'm sure I'm not. I'm sure there are better things we can do. But four months to get a loan seems to be an awfully long time on average. And I'd like to work with you to see if we can make this faster. To which the bureaucrat on the other end of the table basically told me he had no interest in trying to make it faster. They were dotting their eyes and crossing their T's and what is what it was and this and that, and they weren't going to budge. And so I told them, I, and I never sent him another loan again. <laughs> and then, because I do what I say. And then we went to work and we started to find out that there were actually a bunch of lenders out there that were infinitely better and more flexible than them, and much faster than them. And over time, as we really got better and sophisticated, and then at some point we said, well, 10% of our loans a year are these big ones. So we said, we're just going to start fishing and looking for those big ones. And we're not going to start worrying about these little ones. And then over time, we really started to build some very, very solid expertise in SBA lending. And whatever makes the most sense for our clients is what we do. But it's the SBA loans at least today, that are making the most sense about 95% of the time. Our whole mantra or culture or values here or, you know, or tre treat an entrepreneur like we want to be treated. Mm -hmm. I had my lights turned off a couple of times building my company. I don't want that to happen to anybody else if they can possibly help it. You are, you are fighting the good fight, man. I'm, I'm not going to go to bed at night knowing that I put entrepreneurs in shitty loans that screw up their cash flow just yeah. so I can hide commissions on yeah. them. Um, I'm just, I'm just not going to do that. And, 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 and so with that spirit, that is how we're going about it and how we're doing it. And it's working pretty well. Well, and it, you're making the market more efficient, which is getting the entrepreneurs the capital and hopefully the capital for the productive things that they want to do. I kind of a couple different uh, angles I want to tackle this. I um, mean, is that one is from the entrepreneur side and like the, I mean, I just think about if you were like these bankers trying to give us loans 
12 years ago. I mean, we just understood revenue, our checking account and an income statement. That was like what we were managing the business off of, even though we had a hundred and some employees and 20 million in revenue. So that's what kind of like the entrepreneur mindset. And then the other angle is like the flavors and the kind of the flexibility with the SB loan. And I heard that, you know, there's some evolution of it over the last handful of months too, but kind of like both of these is the way I see is like matching up the needs and the wants with where they're going with the, 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 the products. But like, I don't know if you have one angle you want to start to tackle first. So one of the big challenges that I think entrepreneurs in the world we work in and live in struggle with, and I'm no different is really understanding the, the, the economic engine of their machines that they're building and what makes the machines tick and ups and downs and curves and sideballs and just really having a solid handle on finances and the models mm -hmm. and predictions and modeling and forecasts. So it intrigued me. I had two conversations over the last two days with two entrepreneurs in LA in very different situations. One was growing so fast, these companies eating cash, he can't keep up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other is in the logistics business and he's lost like half his revenue since the peak of COVID and he's struggling to figure out how to survive. Both of them have a need for going into the next year. Both of them are sitting there thinking about equity or debt. Mm -hmm. Okay. And both of their brains are in a frenzy and they don't, in my opinion, have the situation under control. What they both need is a well thought out forecast and projection of what they their very best guess is of what's going to happen next year with maybe a worst case and a best case and a medium case scenario. And if they're going to have a cash deficit through that and they're going to need cash, they need to know what that is. Mm -hmm. Nothing. They couldn't tell me either uh, what their cash need was. 250, 500, a million, 2 million. They were spitballing it. You, you know what I usually hear, Ami? It's just one word. More. <laughs> that's the wrong answer. No, I know, so, but that, that's, but it, when people don't know, it's just they. I want to increase my line of credit and increase my ability to grab capital, so that way, when it becomes visible to me that I need it, I can grab it. But I joke about it, but I mean it. Mm -hmm. If you're in a hurry and you, you go for lunch to McDonald's, you could have indigestion for a couple hours, but then you'll be over it. If you're in a hurry and you make a stupid financing choice, you can have indigestion for a few years or ruin your business or ruin your whole personal financial situation. What I always say to people is slow that down. Slow down. Take a breath. What are we trying to solve for here? What are we trying to accomplish? Once the strategy is clear and the structure is clear, the financing is often the easiest part. But if you're just kind of sailing in the wind, give me some money, you risk making a big mistake. And I don't like seeing people make mistakes. The problem is that most business owners and entrepreneurs don't really have the internal resources 
to build those forecasts and projections that they okay and that's a a big in my opinion ongoing challenge in the market um amen i don't i don't know what else to say other than the fact that like i completely agree especially with my experience um we've had 600 people go through the training so i'm hearing these anecdotal stories all the time and then with the visage workshops that i was uh, mentioning like what i what i've noticed sliding right into your your observations and what you're what you just said i mean is that it's the habits that i i'm curious if you agree or disagree with this and this is again kind of my my experience from my angle but like over the last 15 years i mean since quantitative easing and all the you know cheap money happened in 08 and 09 people's income statements they were able to just look at their income statement and kind of just be all right because there was demand enough there as long as they were meeting that demand with good work and hard hustle and as long as the business model was okay where they weren't a distributor like us where we would pull the book from both, both directions they were fine kind of but then now it's like there's all this stuff going on with a cash flow statement becomes gold to be able to see but like when you think about your next the forecast just the income statement it's not going to show the cash deficit and i see so few people understand that cash flow statement which is where the the answers are i mean do you do you, do you agree disagree similar experiences or what's I, that? I i agree and there's there's there are two other elements to the market right now one is we lived through this period of artificially low interest rates for a long time that many people in our generation just said, this is how life is. Right. <laughs> so now it's tough because we start to see files where, where if interest rates were what they were still, what they were 18, 24 months ago, we could probably recapitalize a company, give them a chance to live to fight another day. But with interest rates almost doubled, okay, it's sometimes very difficult or not advantageous to refinance or restructure debt. Mm -hmm. The other challenge is for a lot of entrepreneurs with the ERTC and the EIDL and all these things, the government props so much cash into so many businesses, either for free or such long terms that if people didn't have a worthy plan, how to play, play with it and project, work for it, work with it and project it, it was a shit show. Okay. I, I laugh. I, I, I agreed. Agreed. And like, I mean, like, I, I think about, so it, here's what I've been watching or seeing in various forms or fashions is like, I think about, we sold our second to largest branch when we were sucking wind. And we sold it for like $1.7 million or something like that. And again, we're 20 million in revenue. We should have probably had a line of credit of 1.8. We had a million five in receivables, million five in payables, whatever it was. But like that one seven disappeared in literally like an afternoon. <laughs> so the payables, receivables, inventory. And so when I'm watching people, if they didn't build out their cost structure to meet the demand of what they thought was gonna happen, it's just like that. I'm like, I've been through that before. And it's like, I don't know if people haven't experienced it before. It's just this horrifying, like, then what? You don't realize how fast something like that can disappear. Yeah, let's take the idle money, the economic injury disaster loan. 
So the, uh, my numbers might be a little bit off, but the during the Trump administration, it's not a political statement. They did like 3.7 million of these of like $70,000. And then the Bidenites came in and they said, oh, well, we got to, there's still like $250 billion worth its budget. We have to prove that we can get out the money. So they handed out like 300,000 businesses and average high loan of $700,000 without proof of economic injury on 30-year money at 3.75% interest. And they handed, out, handed it out like cotton candy. Okay. No one read, not no one. Most people didn't read that loan documents. Most people didn't understand that they took the money. Mm-hmm. And now they've started to run out of it. And now they're calling for more. And, oh, you know, the government has a lien on you. What do you mean? Oh, you better explain to the lender what you did with that money. Like, you have to tell the lender where that money went or you've got a character problem and no one's going to give you more money, right? And this is, I think, in this particular instance, the government acting like a bunch of drunk corporate soldiers that they trying to use all their money at the end of the year to fulfill their budget, mm-hmm. okay? And it's these types of things that talk to the point of, I don't like to give anyone a loan or help anyone get a loan, Unless I know there's a concrete plan behind it that's going to help them make more money than the loan and the cost of the interest. I don't like to give people loans just to piss in the wind. And some guy called a couple weeks ago, I need some more money. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see this $750,000 idle loan on your balance sheet. Where'd that go? Oh, I paid off my divorce settlement. Some guy got he got two of them, okay, for two different companies. He got $4 million of idle money. And he said, great, I got to hire up. I'm going to scale my company up. And he hired all these people. Okay. And then his receivables were growing and he had a cash flow problem. And he called desperately looking for receivables. And I go, hey, that money wasn't meant to scale up your company and hire lots of people. Good luck. So given the fact that I don't know how many years, but you and I have a, a gauge, an age gap. And I... I mean, I have been trying to figure out what the hell happened with the financial literacy of like, so like, and I, and I said, I'm thinking out loud, so everybody bear with me, but like, I, I mean, I know my, my, my father didn't go to college, right? Like, like, and a lot of entrepreneurs are similar. And I, I was, I always had like the sales gene. I mean, that's what my, my father always said, like, Hey, as long as you can sell, you'd be fine. And I say this all because. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, or a disproportionate amount of them, I don't know what percentage is on me, but like there's a lot of people that started in their craft, learn how to you know be the sales chief idea, chief salesperson, and then there's the growth that happens. And then there's all, there, there tends to be this point in time where someone realizes that understanding the numbers is really the story that has to be told when you sell your business, the story that has to be told when you go get financing. Or like, or at least the story that makes sense over how you're using your cash. At the end of the day, it's how how do you make decisions? And so, like, I don't know, like, like what what happened here? <laughs> it's kind of, like we're that that many people are you know taking the cotton candy like drunken sailors, just hoping. Like, I just I, I guess my point is I can't imagine. Like, I'm okay with calculated bets that are risky. Like, done plenty of them myself, right? But like, to do it without having even a vague idea of what 
the consequences are going to be? I don't know. I, I just, well, how do you process it? I think there's, again, I got people angry at me. I wrote a, I wrote a, a blog post about this. One of my 21 hats posts about it, but I love Lauren, by the way. Yeah. He's yeah, great. yeah. yeah. And I wrote something, something on the EO message boards. I've been someone who was heavily invested in EOS entrepreneur operating system and spending a lot of money on ES coaching and implementing, but their bookkeeping and their accounting was so fundamentally kind of, am I a lot of person here? Oh, oh, yeah. okay. Okay. <laughs> that I was like, what the hell are you doing? How can you sit there and do rocks and do planning and do strategy and formulate all this stuff with until your your fundamentals of your foundation are in order. So I put something out on the EO message board, something to the effect of maybe it's like malpractice if an EOS implementer or a scaling up coach or whatever takes on a client and takes them through all this process and operating system methodology before their bookkeeping or their accounting is all like in, in yeah. order. <laughs> Right. Maybe you should just like it's like what comes first. Get your shit together before you figure out what you're gonna do. The chicken or the egg, right? And a lot of people don't like that. Oh, the EOS and the scaling up coaches are saying, "Oh, we figured that out as part of the process. As one of the rocks, and one of the this, and one of the that." <laughs> and I'm like, "That's a bunch of bullshit, right?" Like, and <laughs> I love it so much. But uh, there is a raw problem, I think, that I was just had someone on my podcast earlier today actually talking about this, and I wish I knew how to solve for it, is that the truth is that the, the finance needs of companies and entrepreneurs change over time, and the level of accounting support you need, and the level mm -hmm. of finance support and bookkeeping support you need, and health of your systems, and this and that changes over time. And I wish, and sometimes people outgrow their accounting firms and their accounting firms don't tell them or they just seek the business, all kinds of things. And I wish there was a service out there that would come in and give an entrepreneur an honest, candid review of here's your grade on your finance and your accounting systems and processes, whatever it is. And here's for the stage of your business, here are the changes and recommendations that we suggest you make. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Ami. If you want an outsider's perspective on your financials and the state of your financials and the clarity of your goal, if you schedule a discovery call with myself using the link below in the show notes, I can then ask you a couple questions and I can tee you up to my team at Arcona who will plug in the dashboard, analyze your numbers and come back to you with their thoughts and observations. It's essentially what Ami's talking about, about a grade on your state of your financials because you need to get your core set up so that way you can tie your point A, your three financial statements right now to your point B, which is your target normalized EBITDA and valuation. And one of the best ways to do that is to get an outsider's perspective say, hey, where am I at right now? Because there's probably some work that you need to do to clarify your point A, get them cleaned up, and then tie it to your point B. 
so that way you have a visible roadmap to see what kind of funding you will need. That's not all part of the financial assessment, but what is part of it is an observation and an outsider's perspective using our dashboard to say, hey, here's what we see right now. And it may or may not even be a fit because we can't plug in our dashboard if there's too much cleanup, but at least it can give you hopefully the motivation to slog through cleaning up your financials because it's not fun work, but if you want the data and you want the plan, you gotta do it. Otherwise, you might be taking on debt or taking on equity with having no idea of how it's gonna get you to your goal. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast with Ami. It's a wonderful conversation, and I think he's highlighting why it's so important to do this type of work. The reason I say that's interesting is like, we do this complimentary assessment with our financial dashboard with our clients, our prospects, people that want to explore working with our financial dashboard. We build this three statement. Essentially, I mean, we t- we build this three statement model. We tie in giraffe. If you're familiar with that FPNA tool, we take giraffe and say, okay, well, where you're at right now, and we tie it to their target normalized EBITDA valuation that they want. But that's the easy part. They don't know where they're at ever. <laughs> so like the chart right. accounts is a pile of shit. And like people don't like, Hey, like I we had to tell someone like, you don't have a hundred percent margin. You just don't have any cost of goods in your chart of accounts. <laughs> like, so like to your point, but like, there'd be an interesting approach to say, Hey, what's your grade based on your size and what you're trying to accomplish? Huh. What's your grade and what do you need to do to, to fix it? Right. Well, it's a, uh... It's so fascinating to me because like, you know, going back to your EOS implement, I mean, honestly, it's like you were listening in on my conversations. I, I'm not huge on social media because I don't really feel like getting crucified by everybody online all the time. Like, look at the, I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with what you said. And it's like, I, I can't imagine how anybody would have a disagreement with that. And I think about it and I've been saying this for years. I mean, I'm like, okay, so I, I'm like, Okay, let me get this straight. So EOS implementers are going to the annual planning, having no idea what the freaking strategy is or how much any of these rocks are going to take to co- or cost when we're going to have the cash flow to do them, whether we've got the financing and we're just going to make shit up. They just, not just them, a lot of these coaches. Uh, so like for like, you know, I, I think we're, we're, we've got the precedent set by the insane government because I don't know how, how many people do you think understand, Ami, that like, we have this appropriation committee and then we have the budget committee. <laughs> so like, right. like, like that would be like going with your family to say, how much stuff do we want to spend money on with having no constraints and having that separate from the conversation of, can we afford any of this or not? Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad. How do you wrap? So like, uh, yeah, how do you wrap your head around this? Like, how, like what, what is the, uh, Oh, I don't even know what to do with it sometimes. Honestly, I, I just think that there is, I mean, it, it's very difficult work to do to uh, help. I mean, we often will encourage a client to go get a fractional CFO to help them build some modeling, forecasts and projections and get a, a handle on a sense of what's going on in their accounting systems and processes and the ability to understand their model. And I teach a class um, one of my workshops I do is called Finding Your Growth Lane and Sleeping Well at Night uh, and trying to help entrepreneurs lay out three different growth plans based on tracking their investment spend and what might happen if they have different investment levels. And it's all, I think, great theory, all super important to do. And I don't think 90% of the people can do it when they leave the room. Well, I, it's very, okay. 
interesting um, data point because in uh, with our we've got our fractional CFO service offering, which actually is now probably like, I think it's like 15% of our business, this dashboard offering with coaching calls, kind of like the do it with you. We're like in the CFO services, our CFOs on will sit on the L10 of the, of the company. They have like five clients max, but like on this, like that became a challenge just in a whole, there's a whole long conversation of why that's a challenge to scale, but also to, I mean, we're still doing it and we've got a lot of clients doing that, but this, this dashboard plus coaching offerings, like the do it with you, helping people kind of see it is, uh, yeah. is one thing, but the reason that I, in, in our boot camps, which is more about kind of the bigger picture of like, what do you want? How valuations work exits, then slide in finances, your roadmap to get there. And I teach it in, in the spreadsheets and just because like, I want people to know, like, if you have the finance function, like this is math, double entry accounting and spreadsheets. Like this is no hocus pocus, Ryan made up garbage. Like someone could either do that or not do that. And I'm trying to make it very easy. And I think people still think I'm like making crap up that like, I just like made it all, you know, more complicated than it needs to be. And it's not supposed to be. Okay, so who did math up, right? <laughs> so like, let's talk about, I, I, like, Within the context, kind of going back to let, let's say someone, okay, now that we've covered some of the challenges out there with the, the entrepreneurs, the financial literacy, but I think the people listening in here, I like to say that like we we promote hard work. Hard work is like, I have this client calls it type two work. He goes type two, no, he calls it type two fun. Sorry. Type two fun is hard work that gets you a good, a good outcome. So people that are tuning in like the type two type of fun. And so if someone has a three statement model on me from point A to point B, of where they're at. Let's talk about how it should be visible, what capital they need and how you think about the SBA loan within that. Like just to kind of maybe walk us through like some of your thought processes or the questions you'd be asking to someone of like, hey, okay, is a line, you know, how does the SBA loan fit into that? Look, there's, there's two different things that people have to understand fundamentally. First is what is the appropriate use of a line of credit and what is the appropriate use of term debt? So let's dig into both. Yep. Line of credit, in my opinion, is like an insurance policy. I don't care if you never touch it. It's fine with me if you never touch it, but it should be there. Mm -hmm. Businesses, the line of credit is like part of the furniture. Like you just need it. It's part of the operating business. But one of the stories I tell is if you have a pizza shop on the New Jersey shore, and let's say you have a line of credit sitting in your drawer for years, and then your air conditioning blows on a Friday in the heat of summer and you need 50 grand to replace your unit by Monday. Okay. If you had the foresight to get that line and you can use that check, it's probably going to be eight, 9% until you can refinance it out or deal with it. If you call me on Friday and go, Ami, I need 50 grand by Monday. What's that lender going to smell? They're going to smell a commission <laughs> and There's desperation. A lot of desperation <laughs> and you yeah. never want be in a situation if you can possibly help it where a lender smells blood and desperation actually if you need 50 grand in your account by monday you're you could be talking about an apr close to 200 mm percent -hmm. and at that point that's only that business owners I, I wouldn't give i wouldn't put them in that loan okay but that's only their fault if they put themselves in that situation right right boy right. so the world has unexpected surprises and the best way to think predominantly about a line of credit is for an emergency and also some businesses of seasonality mm -hmm. and some heavily AR and inventory intensive businesses 
they just need a line of credit because they need it because they just just the cash requirements of that business. If you're looking to make investments in your business, whatever they are, people, equipment, right, a partner, growth capital, new location, whatever, that, that's best served by term debt. And with that, you need to have the discipline of saying, how much money do I need for what? And what's it gonna make me and where's it gonna get me? Mm-hmm. So let's say I wanna hire these two people for $200,000 and I believe if they work well over five years, they'll make me a million dollars. Then you have a strong thesis and a point of view if you wanted to go borrow that $200,000, maybe on a 10 year SBA note, to give you the cash flow comfort to make those investments. Mm-hmm. It'd be the same thing with people, equipment, whatever it is. So it's getting in that discipline of knowing these are the investments I want to make. This is how much money I think it's going to cost me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to choose a financing structure. And what I always say is when you go into that calculation, what's the best thing that could happen, especially with no prepayment penalty? What's the worst thing that could happen? Like if this all goes to hell, can you afford that monthly payment off of your mm-hmm. list today? And most likely what's going to happen is something in the middle. And that's usually a very good outcome. I like it. And then like the way that I would think about equity, I'm curious if you would add anything to this, but like, like then the next thing would be is like, Hey, if you're looking at equity, I I'm hoping that everybody would take what you just said, which is what is this for? What is the outcome? How am I going to service or how am I going to generate more cash flow? But there, but there might be more ambiguity than there would be around the difference between equity and debt is with equity, you just got married or got married again, but you mm-hmm. got married life of this company. Okay. So you better with an equity partner, really make sure your values are aligned. Your purpose is aligned. Your goals for the company are aligned, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. I'd say like the money comes with a personality and needs and wants. It's not just yeah. green with zeros and ones, but like what I think about, like, as far as like, if you had the point A and the point B and like you were maybe growing too fast where like debt for some reason couldn't get you there, or there was maybe a little bit more uncertainty, that's where you could insert equity. Hopefully it's all the right personalities, but like. Right. Just, yeah. what, I, what I always say is there's usually more than one way to skin a cat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And try to come up and sort out two very different ways, and then list the pros and cons of those ways, and then lose a sleep a night or two deciding which one is best for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, what, so one of the things that I have realized that, like, I think people struggle with with. Let me. Let me I shouldn't. I mean, let me reframe it. How I'm saying this, I believe, given my own, and this is my from my personal experience with and with our clients, is that. I believe that most entrepreneurs, even if they don't have the financial literacy, they get this. They just don't have the ability to see the information in a way that makes any freaking sense to them. Because what ends up happening that I see is like a lot of people default to their income statement, looking at the revenue, optimizing for their gross profit margins, and then assuming that there's going to be some growth in their checking account when the cash hits there. But it's like the way I think about this, Ami, is like it's like looking into the future two-dimensional. Instead of like when you have the three statements and then you look at it in three dimensional, let, let's say like, and, like when, and you throw the three dimensional in there. It's like when I think about owning Arcona, like here's all, by the way, there's these new emojis on there. Do you see that? Yeah. <laughs> no, it happened on my meeting this morning. So for the listeners in, apparently you can do like the Confederate or whether the confetti and stuff. <laughs> but I'm like, I did that on the meeting. I was like, what the hell? A thumbs up just happened. Um, but um, when I think about 
where the hell was I? Is I believe when I think about Arcona and I think about any of our clients, regardless of their financial acumen, it's like, okay, if I own a company, when I've got the investor owner hat on and thinking about like a financial asset, I want to place bets of like either hire these people, launch a product or service, buy a company, whatever it might be. And I hope that I'm going to grow. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And their their biggest question is, what are the trade-offs? Like if I place these bets in the next 12 and 18 months into the future, not my CPA's tax return, but like in the future, can I maintain my taxes, my distributions, the debt service, and the working capital? All important questions. And like I, I think, I guess my question to you is, I I think when I frame it up like that, most people that I talk to agree and understand. They just have never had the information delivered in a way that is readable or makes sense. It's usually like I had this one guy in our boot camp two weeks ago say he was most of the account. What the hell? I did it again. The uh, most of the most of the accounting stuff is for technical people that is not that it's man. It's like a, he called it. I don't know what he called it, but it was like it, essentially just people that called the technical accounting side, but it wasn't for operators where operators know how to operate a business and they just need to see a quick set of trade-offs in the future of whether they can or cannot do what they're doing. And then they could go back and answer your question to say, well, is this a line of credit issue? Is this an SBA issue or is that, you know I mean? Like then it could, it's the right order, but then it's the lack of that three statement, three dimensional view that like no one has. But you can't build that three dimensional view for them if they're if shit in, shit out. <laughs> I know. Uh, yes, agreed. Okay. Well, why do you why do you think so many people's books are just shit? Like, what 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 led to the point where so many companies? It's got to be nine out of ten. We're like, we can't just plug in our dashboard and go because they have just an insane amount of cleanup. Like, what what led to that being able to be a thing? Well, accounting is probably for most entrepreneurs not why they got into business. It's not their strong suit, right? And so during those first few years when you're just sweating it out, trying to survive, you don't focus on the accounting like you should, you know? I hear you, but like, I just, I, I just, again, I'm fascinated with the fact that so many companies have a lack of visibility. So then it's like, somehow it's been working up until now, right? It's kind of what I go back to. And I, then that's why I've got this thesis in my head of like the, the last 14 years since quantitative easing in 08, this has been just okay because everything just went up or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy, so, crazy. As I, I know we're getting short on time here. Is As I think about like when you're when someone's hiring you guys and you guys are vetting out the different SBA lenders, what are the different things people should be thinking about of whether they've – I don't know if you got to – like I'm trying to think of the right way to frame up the question on me is like – I think what you had mentioned it earlier where a lot of people find one bank and they're like, oh, the banks that I didn't qualify. And they just assume every bank just lends out money and that's that. And, and maybe it's a little, changed a little bit over the last few years as people realize that some banks were really good at ERTC or not ERTC, but the PPP or different programs like this. They're like, oh, not all banks are treated equal. But like, what are some differences that different SBA lenders it can be, it's, it's credit appetite that some lenders will work on projections. Some will, some will, some you know, are much tighter credit boxes than others. Some will do certain types of loans and otherwise won't. It's it's all a it's really a, a whole variety of twists and turns that make it happen. So but that's least important. Finding the right lender is the easy part. 
being clear on your strategy and your objectives and your needs of capital and the implications of it. That's the hard part. It's strategy, mindset, cash. Okay. If the strategy and the mindset are clear, we can almost always solve for the cash. Interesting. I like it. It aligns a lot with with our approach. I like it a lot. What do, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are from people picking their strategy and getting the right mindset? I mean, it's it, one of the things I, I, I say about all that, which we haven't really talked about here, it is I don't think we talk about it a lot, is getting comfortable with your risk tolerance. So I'm not a big believer that every company has to scale exponentially. To the contrary, people, oh, well, I'm a, I want to come up with this. Also, I got in trouble for this idea, but I thought it was appropriate and fun. Come on, give it to me. I want to hear it. <laughs> Instead of having the Inc. 5000 based on fastest growth of top line revenue, I'd like to see like a Sleep 5000 award. So you, 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 you take every entrepreneur, pick a threshold of $2 million of revenue, and then they agree to some kind of a sleep app or sleep monitoring app for a year. And whoever wins, sleeps the most wins. Dude, you and I, I'll I, I mean, tell you what, I like it a lot. Uh, I have had Jack Stack on the podcast like, quite a few times, and uh, he was talking about like the early days of Inc. 5000 and how he was like part of, I don't know what, play or what role he played but like he was part of like the kind of the origination or something to do with like how it was coming across and he's like i i got out of it because he goes i found out like after years and years only like he said it was over 50 percent of the ing 5000 can't pay two payrolls <laughs> and i remember the year we lost a shitload of money we were on the ing 5000 and it's same yeah. thing with the best places to work and i'm like literally there was a company i really like they just went under literally had to fire everybody best place to work in 5,000. And I'm sitting there going, this is just such a bunch of crap. I'm just so sick and tired of us giving accolades to things that don't judge ultimate success. And right. like, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. I like it, man. <laughs> How do we, what, what are you, what are you doing to help change this? I know you got your podcast you got the book. Like what, what do you, like, what's the, what's, what, what, got I mean, you I, I, mean I go out and do a lot of speaking like you do and workshops and deeply involved in EO entrepreneurs organization. Um, I kind of, uh, I used to do a lot of Vistage, which I know you're, you've been doing. I do very little Vistage anymore. I find it too exhausting um, and not, you know, part of my objective is impact and just speaking to small groups one at a time. I don't feel like I have the impact that I want to have. Mm -hmm. I agree. Just my, my take on it, although I learned a lot being a Vistage speaker and it helped me get my business off the ground. So I don't begrudge them anything mm -hmm. for that. There are some great vistage groups out there, so I'm not, I'm not sort of hammering away at vistage, hammering away at Inc. Five Thousand, but not vistage. Uh, but the, uh, I just go about my day, do my thing, live my values. Uh, our whole mantra here is we treat entrepreneurs as we want to be treated. Um, that's our culture and who we are, and you know, we're doing great. We'll do about. Hundred and thirty million dollars of SBA loans this year. It's a lot of volumes. Yeah, and, uh, and we're right up there, and we're growing, and we're just we're doing it. We're very intentional, and we're holding holding steady to who we are. And has it been hard over the? Has that been hard over the years? As hard, 
course, when there's times when, like in the early days, when I'm like bouncing payroll checks and stuff and walking into these uh, fellow entrepreneurs' companies that have taken venture capital or multiple rounds of private equity and they have 500 employees in their uh uh in their bank you know in their office fancy office in san francisco and new york i'm like what the hell's wrong with me what 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 kept you true to your mission man and i'm asking i'm asking in quotes for a friend <laughs> i just want to build a company that i'm proud of listen to my values I fall asleep at night knowing I haven't screwed anybody. I, and and I go to bed at night knowing that we're legitimately helping people. And I believe sometimes the tortoise wins the race, and I'm going to win the race, however it ends up run, running. Well, I, I'll tell you what, this is this has been, for the listeners probably listening, I mean, this has been therapeutic for me. I mean, because little little uh, anecdotal story is when we sold, I got an offer to be the GM. So I was in my mid mid or late twenties for an, a very large salary amount and some equity of this hard money lending fund. And right. I was like, and I was just like, honestly, I was like, what the F I literally, that was the reason I was in my problem for the last seven years. Right. And I just, am I just gonna like, it, like, am I really just gonna be part of the problem? And I like, honestly, I said to myself, I'm like, it, like that company should be teaching everybody why they shouldn't take the money. <laughs> I'm just like, this is just ridiculous. And I, it's a, I appreciate it, man. I really do because it just, that there's a lot to be said about that, being able to put your head in the pillow and be proud of what you're doing. I don't know. And Ryan, not, not on this quote, but let's go offline when I can't do it today, but I'd love to understand much more deeply uh, what you guys are up to and how we can maybe collaborate and help. So likewise, I mean, so before we, uh, before we wrap, uh, two questions for you. One is uh, the word intentional. Love to hear people's definition of it because it just sparks so much about their uh, their way of thinking. What does the word intentional mean to you? It's living my values. I like it. If people want to know more about you, find your book, find the company, reach out. Where should they reach out? Where should uh, they look for you? Mostly at multifunding.com. You can pretty much find everything there. So. And your podcast is there, which I recommend people check out, the book and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's all there. Um, thank station. you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show, my friend. Been a lot of fun. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you learned a lot in that conversation. You can tell through Ami and I, we both got to where we are the really hard way. And we both have this observation that we have to understand our target equity valuation and point in time, and then reverse engineer to say, where are we at right now? That point A and the point B. And if we have our three financial statements connected in a timeline to that target equity valuation, it should pop into clear view how fast do you need to grow? How is that going to impact your distributions that you want or need or the taxes? And then how much is left over and can you fund it through cash flow from operations or are you going to have to take on some sort of debt or equity and do you want it? No one should have to tell you what to do. And if you want the power to have this decision-making for yourself, that map and that roadmap has to be visible. So you can do a couple of things to move forward. One is 
the education will help you clarify what you want and why and what the target equity valuation needs to be. And if you don't want to sign up for the Intentional Growth Academy for the do-it-yourself, which is a thousand bucks after 500 bucks off using the coupon code below in the show notes, you can sign up for the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, which gives you a sample of the material. And I actually show inside the starter kit projecting out the valuation of a company using a case study. So the Intentional Growth Academy or the Starter Kit. And if you're ready and you think you want someone else's perspective, you can schedule a discovery call with myself. I'll ask you some questions. And if it's a fit, I'll tee you up to my team who will then plug in our financial dashboard. They'll analyze the, uh, your, your numbers and come back to you with their thoughts and observations because it might not even be a fit if your numbers are too messy. But if they are, it could be a good fit. But at least you'll have an idea of what's possible. So fill out the starter kit or register for the starter kit, the academy or discovery call for the financial assessment. All those links are in the show notes below. And next week, I'm super pumped. I've got Richard Wilson on the podcast. He is the founder of the Family Office Club, the owner of billionaires.com. And we are gonna be talking about how billionaires think and how they're getting to where they are. And a lot of what we're talking about is core to their philosophy, but it's not just about the numbers. It's about how they're managing their life and their time. And Richard has been interviewing billionaires to understand what their traits are and their strategies are to get where they wanna go. And I think you're gonna love it. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I'll see you next week.